Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Truly, our Father, you are great. You are worthy to be worshipped. And we pray, Father, that your spirit would enlighten our mind to comprehend more of your greatness this day. As we open up your word to study the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we pray that you would teach us so that we would grasp this truth. We thank you, Father, that you did not leave us in our sins, but you have saved us and that you have given us a new heart. And we pray, Father, that our heart is fastened to the Savior, who is the one and only true Master and Lord. And we pray, Father, that we would be devoted to Him. And if there's anything in our life that would hinder us from this, Father, we pray that You would remove it. We pray, Father, that You would cause us to see our sin and to confess our sin and not seek in any way to compromise our lives with this world. Cause us, Father, to see that Christ is the great treasure, that He and He alone should be our Master, and that we should follow Him. We pray, Father, for those that are unable to be with us this day. You know their reasons and their needs. We pray especially for those who are ill, we ask that your healing hand be upon their body. We remember Brother Fonzo and pray that you would relieve him of his pain from his surgery and that you would give him quick healing. We pray also, Father, for others who have physical issues that you would minister to them. We know that you alone are the great physician, that you alone are able to restore health. We pray that you would be gracious and merciful to these. We pray for the gospel as it's proclaimed throughout the world today that many would come into your kingdom and we pray that they would give you honor and glory the rest of their lives. In this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to Matthew chapter 6. Be looking at one verse this morning, but I want us to go back and read the previous verses. Matthew chapter 6. Let us begin with verse 19 and read through verse 24. Matthew 6, beginning with verse 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and break still, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the light. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. That particular verse that we just read, verse 24, is often quoted by itself, but I want you to see 
that it is connected to the previous verses that we just read. And Jesus is distinguishing between his true followers and false followers, or we could say true worshipers and false worshipers. And he does that by using the illustration of where one's heart, one's mind, one affection is fashioned upon, whether it's fashioned upon heavenly things or earthly things. And we know that false worshipers put their hope in earthly things, the things of this world, which really are the devil, the flesh, and the lust of the eye. And we know the pleasures of this world, that's what they desire, and their hearts are attached to those things, and they desire those things throughout their entire life, blinded to the truth, blinded to their only hope is in Christ, and that He is the treasure but yet they continue to seek the treasure of this world. Their security are in those things. And they think that if they need anything, then therefore they can earn it in themselves and therefore never rest in Christ, in Christ alone. So their eyes are set on self-satisfying, being in love with this world. But we also see true worshipers, and true worshipers are those who dwell on heavenly things. Their heart is fastened upon the same desire that Paul had, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. So they serve God. They worship God. They know that he is the true treasure and that that treasure is incorruptible, undefiled, and will not fade away. So therefore their eyes have been opened And their understanding is open to where they know of the treasure. And they have been given heavenly wisdom to be able to make godly judgment about the things of this world. So we see that Jesus presents this teaching to those who are listening to him that there is only one master in a person's life. And he distinguishes that whichever master you serve, if you serve the one And true living God, then you are saved. But if you serve the master of this world, Satan himself, then you are lost. He makes it very clear that Christians are not to make materialism their chief goal. For the things of this world are passing away. The things of this world are temporary. But they're easy to capture our heart and we must realize that. We know that they will lead to destruction in a person's life. And pursuing earthly treasures will end in darkness. It will end in ruin, misery, because it enslaves a man and it deceives him. He thinks these things will bring him happiness, but instead they simply lead to destruction. We see a very obvious illustration of that. Paul speaks of Deimos. And he says about Deimos, for Deimos has forsaken me, having what? Having loved this present world. And it's easy to fall in love with this present world. This world is always enticing us, seeking to drag us into its hold, into its grip, just as it did Deimos. Now, if the Lord God isn't your master then this world is. And the things of this world, all that this world represents, 
And there's only two masters, God and Satan, who controls the things of this world. Now, many think that they can have God and this world. There's so many that sit in the church today thinking that mindset. They have divided affections, divided energies between both of these. But Jesus Christ makes it definitely clear that that is utterly foolish. You cannot have both masters. It's impossible. Children, I want you to write that as one of the important words in your little uh, folder that you have. Impossible. It's impossible to have two masters. I don't know. I think it gives you like six blanks there for important words. I was looking over one of my uh, grandchildren and they had all their siblings on those five blanks or six blanks. That's not what I'm wanting you to put on those blanks, children. I'm wanting you to put important words. And that's one of the important words, that it is impossible to have two masters. Now, many think that they can have two masters. They think they can have one foot in this world and one foot in heaven. And therefore, they devote all of their energies to the things of this world. Now, many of the Jews that were sitting there listening to Jesus at this time were engrossed with the dreams of worldly prosperity. They desired to be like Father Abraham, who was very wealthy. And they thought that if they could be like Father Abraham in their prosperity, then they would have the spiritual joy that he had. They thought that his spiritual joy came from his prosperity. They didn't understand that that is not where Abraham got his spiritual joy. So therefore, Jesus is informing them that this thinking was sinful and that this thinking needed to be repented of. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says pertaining to the mindset today. This is perhaps the most urgent word that is needed by Christian people at this very moment. Now, of course, this was about 50 years ago, but it continues to be an urgent word for us. The world is so subtle, worldliness is so pervasive thing that we are all guilty of it, often without realizing it. And I agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones. We're all guilty, and often we do not realize how guilty we are. Sad to say that this church, this teaching has come into the church. It's come into many pulpits where so-called preachers fill their listener hearings with the prosperity gospel, telling them that God wants them to be rich, that God wants them to be happy. And these wolves in sheep clothing are perverting the truth of God for personal gain. And here we see that Christ reveals the impossibility of the human heart being divided between God and the world. Now, I want us to think as we look at this particular verse about two truths which inform us on Jesus' teaching here. First, Jesus makes it clear that no one can serve both God and Manon. Children, what is the greatest commandment? What does God require of us? The greatest commandment, what? To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. So our heart must be given to the Lord without reservation. Our affections must be undivided, totally submitting to Him. Charles Spurgeon said, Conversion 
is a change of masters. Will we not do as much for our new master, the Lord Jesus, as we did for our old tyrant lust? So he's saying we move from one position, from one master, when we're converted to another master. The master that we had before, of course, was this world, which, of course, was ruled by the devil himself. So we followed the devil, and then when we were converted, we come to Christ. Now, he's our new master, and what is he saying? We ought to do more for our new master than we did for our old master. I mean, if you're tempted to love the world instead of God, or if you are tempted to love God and the world, you will fail. As James tells us in 4.4, Friendship with this world is enmity with God. Whoever wants to be friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God. Do we really believe that? Do we really and truly believe that if we make friendship with this world, that we are enemies with God? I hope you believe that because that's what the scripture tells us. But I'm afraid that often we read a passage like that and we somehow or another just dismiss it and think that, that's for other people. But serving two masters is infinitely impossible. Write that word down, children. That's a word that your parents are going to ask you. What are one of the important words the pastor mentioned this morning? You cannot lay up treasures on this earth and in heaven at the same time. To think differently is to disagree with the very words of Jesus. And Jesus gives us the proof of this when he says, For either you will hate the one and love the other, or else be devoted to one and despise the other. That's what he's saying. So we have to see that serving God or serving this world are two opposite. Now, the Greek word serve there's another important word, children, serve. I'm helping you out a lot today. That important word, serve, it does not mean simply an act of obedience, but being a bond servant, being a slave, one who is constantly, entirely submitted to someone or something. So a person is either a bond servant, a slave to Christ, or he's a bondservant and a slave to sin, or you could say to this world, or to the flesh, or to the devil. Now, Scripture says in Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin or some translations say, to serve sin. So we see quite clearly we are saved, what, from sin, but we're also saved to no longer be a slave to sin, no longer serve sin. In Romans 7, 6 it says, But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit. So now he's pointing out that we are bond slaves to the newness of the Spirit. We are slaves to the newness of the Spirit. So one changed by the grace can no longer be a slave to sin. He can no longer sin, uh, he can no longer sin continuously. 
That doesn't mean he doesn't sin, but he can no longer sin continuously in the same sin. For he's a new creature. He has a new master. And his entire view of things change. He has a new outlook on everything. He no longer wants to please self. He wants to deny self. Now he wants to please God. He wants to live for God. He wants to serve God. He wants to be God's bondservant. He wants to be God's slave. Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on and says, These things tend to come between us and God. And our attitude of them ultimately determines our relationship to God. Did you hear that? Our attitude toward these things determine our relationship to God. He goes on and says, The mere fact that we believe in God and call Him Lord, Lord, is no proof in and of itself that we are serving God. That we recognize His totalitarianism and His demand. So he's saying, just merely saying that, and we see that in Matthew chapter 7, just merely saying, Lord, Lord, is no fact that you know God. It's no proof that you know God. What's the proof that you know God? Well, the proof is that you serve Him, that you are His bond slave, that you are His servant, and you are totally submissive to His will. Now, the other word, here's another word, children, other. Other denotes a entirely different kind, an entirely different type. So when Christ declares for you will be loyal to one and despise the other. What is he saying there? Despise the other. When he declares that, he is teaching that the two masters are the how to say the word, diametrically opposed to one another. Totally opposite. So therefore, one's on this side, one's on that side. And they have nothing in favor of each other. Now, of course, the evil one doesn't want you to think that. The devil doesn't want you to think that they're totally opposite. He wants you to think that they're similar and that you can serve both. And he says, you can serve both, just don't be a fanatic. You can have a foot on this side of the fence as well as on that side of the fence. But what is the deceiver doing? He's trying to deceive us. That's who he is, a deceiver. Just as he deceived from the very beginning, Eve there in the garden, he continues to lie and he continues to deceive us, causing us to think that we can have all that this world offers us as well as heaven. But Jesus continues and says, For either he will hate the one and love the other, else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. Now the strong language makes it clear that no one can be devoted to both. That they are different. That they are opposite masters. Now why? Because the two masters are hostile to one another. The two masters are completely incompatible. And there's nothing whatsoever that they agree upon. One is good, one is evil. One is right, one is wrong. One is light, one is darkness. And I could go on and on. I hope you see that they're opposites. And a servant loves his master and hates the other. Why? Because of who his master is and what his master does. 
The servant is seeking to please his master. He's loyal to his master. He even desires to be like his master. Look at what Jesus told the Pharisees in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 42, when they were criticizing Jesus and trying to say that he was not who he claimed to be. And Jesus responds to them in verse 42, chapter 8, If God were your father, you would love me. And I proceed forth and came from God, nor have I come to myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my words. For you, or you are, of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth because is no truth in him. And he speaks a lie. He speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father a liar. So Jesus is pointing out to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, that their father was the devil and that they desired to do the will of their father, the devil. And they act just like their father. He was a murderer from the beginning. And what do we see later? They're murderers also. They put Christ to death. And there was no truth in him and there's no truth in them. So therefore Jesus makes that comparison of their master who they are following and using the term fathers. Those who have the devil as their master cleave unto him. They love him. They do his will. They love him because he does not condemn them in their sin. He gives them ease in their sin. He gives them enjoyment in their sin. So they continue to follow him. They enjoy that fulfillment that they find in lusting after the things of this world. That temporary high that they have from the pleasures of this world. And they delight in seeking to fulfill the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Now, of course, those that are in Christ and have Christ as their master love Him. And they love His righteous law. They love His commandments. And they hate the things of Satan, knowing that they only destroy the things of Satan, destroy the lives of people. And that Satan is constantly trying to deceive them. Now, both want to do the will of their master, which are totally opposite. To one another. Now, the last statement that Jesus makes there is you cannot serve God and mammon. Because mammon notes, of course, riches, wealth, the things of this world. And it's an attitude that you have concerning all of life and why we have these things in our life. See, if God and mammon are two masters opposed to one another, then these earthly riches are a great Lord here on the world to many. And Christ gives us this warning so that we will be aware of how the world will try to suck us into the belief that we can have these things. But how can riches be your master? How can riches be your God? Well, the answer is, in themselves they aren't. But man's corrupt heart makes an idol of such. 
causing him to set his love and his affection and delight upon them to begin to trust in those things instead of trusting in God. And this is why Paul called it covetousness, idolatry, there in Colossians 3, 5. And a covetous person is an idolater in Ephesians 5, 5. So whatever a person sets his heart upon as his happiness, becomes his master, becomes his Lord, becomes his God. So wealth and riches in one's heart is an idol, and he becomes a servant to that idol. Now how foolish that is, to serve that which should serve man, and to cause him to neglect the God who created him. To take greater delight in serving earthly things are impure and damning to the soul. And their satisfaction is from obtaining temporary riches. Not seeing how foolish that is until it's too late. See, people really serve, and do people really serve inanimate things? I mean, can you picture, say, a stack of $100 bills and somebody bowing down before that stack of $100 bills. No. I mean, you'd say that's crazy. Nobody's going to do that. That's, that's an inanimate object, that $100 bills. But this money, this wealth is opposed to God. And anything that Satan does is that he's seeking to enslave us in that. And that's what John warns us against in 1 John 2, 15, when he says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you realize that there is an influence that material riches has? It exerts it upon the mind. And they seek to entice the mind and lead the mind into thinking that that will bring them happiness. It seeks to entice the mind to draw it into that mindset. I've got to have that thing. I can't live without that thing. And therefore they devote their time and their energy to acquiring that thing. Salesmen are good at enticing the mind. I mean, you go look at a car and you sit in that car and what happens? You smell that new fragrance of that car and you think to yourself, I've got to have this. I mean... It entices us. It it deceives us in thinking that this thing is going to give me happiness because of the smell of it. That's how foolish it is, but that's what we fall for. Now the question is, does the influence cause us to serve them and render our allegiance to them? If you're in Christ, it's impossible for you to become a bond slave, a servant to Satan and the world. As a Christian, you must realize how utterly incompatible these things are. I mean, your primary desire is heaven, Christ, not wealth and riches. And it's sad that the church in recent years has tried to mix certain incompatibilities into the church, thinking that these are legitimate means to seek to bring people into the church. They don't appear sinful, so therefore why can't we use these worldly means to bring people into the church? And that's one reason why the church is in a sad state of affairs. 
having brought so many people into the church who have never truly been set free from their first master. Now second, what does it mean to serve a master? It is to obey what he commands, to do his bidding, to serve God means to worship Him, to live for Him. It's not a feeling, it's an action in our life. And we must understand the real meaning of loving God. I mean, almost everyone, and and I, I ask you to even try it this week, go up and ask someone, do you love God? If I'm wrong, I take you out for a meal. I guarantee it, they'll say, oh yes, I love God. I mean, you'll go out and ask a thousand people this week now to just get a free meal out of me, won't you? But anyway, I guarantee they'll say, oh yes, I love God. Uh, And I, I ask you to ask someone who doesn't attend church. And I guarantee they'll tell you the same thing. Oh, well, then why don't you attend church? Oh, well, I don't have time to attend church. I'm busy on Sundays. Sunday's my only off day that I have. But you say you love God. Oh, yeah, I love God. Well, do you know that what God says in His Word about worshiping Him and loving Him with all His heart, soul, mind, and strength? And don't you believe that God teaches in the Bible that if you love Him, you will come and worship Him? Talk to people like that. Quiz people. Cause them to think about their spiritual relationship and their need to examine their self to see if they truly love God. See, in reality, very few people actually love God. See, to love God means that you will cleave unto Him. And if a person doesn't cleave unto Him by worshiping, serving, obeying, he doesn't love Him. Did you hear what I said? If a person does not cleave unto God by worship, serving, and obeying Him, he doesn't love God. Listen to what A.W. Pink says. Love to God consists not of words or lip service, but in deed and in truth, and it is to be carefully noted that in this verse, Christ insists God must be loved only as a father, but not only as a father, but also as Lord and Master. That is commanding us. It is His word that His will and pleasure is made known. Now, God's word requires service. And it brings us joy as Christians to serve Him. Even if our service brings no reward whatsoever, it still gives us the delight to serve Him. Our Lord shows mercy unto thousands of them that love Him and keep His commandments. And David exemplified that. Same principle in Psalms 119 when he said, I will delight in your commands which I have loved. And then he goes on in Psalms 119, and six more times he says that he delights in the law of God, in the commandments of God. He loved the law of God, and he kept the law of God. Now, did he keep it perfectly? No, we know that he didn't keep it perfectly, but that didn't mean that he didn't love it and that he didn't desire to keep it. Now, Jesus teaches that if we are to serve God in this way, the way that pleases him, it must be done from our heart, a changed heart. Now, this is called Lordship salvation. But is there any other kind of salvation? 
There's some that think there is, but there's not. There's only one kind of salvation, and that's lordship salvation. If Jesus Christ is not Lord of your life, He is not Savior of your life. Did you hear that? If He's not Lord of your life, He's not Savior of your life. Because He is the one that saves us, and when He saves us, He becomes our Master, which means He becomes our Lord. Are you You are not to have any other gods before Him. And He is a very jealous God. And He will not allow rivals. Being holy, 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 He will not tolerate any idols in our secret chambers of our soul. He will demand that we repent. And He uses very explicit language in that great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Listen, nothing short of what God requires satisfies God. No other God means exactly that. No other God. We must, he must be first and He must be only God in our life. Now last week we saw that all who serve God serve Him with a single I, a single A. Aim, looking to Jesus Christ alone for all that we need in this life. Knowing that He's our only hope. He's the only one that can provide what we need in our life. Knowing that He is eternal life. Knowing that He's also promised us great things that are to come in glory. I mean, He's gone ahead of us and He's done what? He has many mansions. I mean, there's nothing on this earth that will compare to the mansion that He has for us in heaven. All that in heaven, there's nothing on this earth that can compare to the things that He has waiting for us there in heaven. So therefore, why do we put our hope into things here on earth? I mean, what this world offers cannot begin to compare to what Christ has promised us. And He demands all of our affections and will not permit us to have a divided heart. I mean, can you imagine... Your spouse allowing you to have a divided heart as far as y'all's relationship is concerned? I know what my spouse would do to me. Matter of fact, I don't even think about what my spouse would do to me. And your spouse would probably do the same thing to you. I mean, we're not to have a divided attention and allegiance and affection to our spouse. And likewise, God says, I will not allow a rivalry. Joshua proclaimed, choose for you This day, whom you will serve, whether the God which is your father, which your father served, that were on the other side of the river, or the God of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what we must say. Doesn't matter what anybody else does. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We are to cling to the Lord. Now I mentioned that earlier, that clinging. What what does that mean? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to a wife, and the two shall become one. Cleaving reveals a oneness, a love. When one leaves their father and mother, they cleave to their wife. We see in the parable of the prodigal son, that he joined or he cleaved himself to the citizens of that country. 
which means that he gave himself over to sin, gave himself over to their lifestyle, gave himself over to serve them, and he found himself eventually serving there in a pig pen, eating the pig slop or desiring the pig slop. So cleaving unto God is resigning ourselves to his service, obeying his commandments, embracing his promises, surrendering to his lordship. Not leaning on our own understanding, but leaning on God's word, leaning on what God teaches us, being led by his spirit. To follow the corrupt desires of the heart gives Satan the priority and leads to destruction. Listen to what Paul said in Titus 1.16. They profess to know God. Does that sound familiar? But in their works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good works. There's many who profess to know God, but their lives, their works deny Him. There's a movie coming out, many of you have already seen it, The Jesus Revolution. That was my day and time. Back in the late 60s, early 80s, I remember it happening. I remember the things that were going on during that time, the hippie movement, all that took place. And in that particular movie, and I, I hadn't seen the movie, I've just read a couple of things pertaining to it. There's one particular individual, Mr. Frisbee, who claimed to have been converted while on drugs. Uh, that ought to tell you something right there. And his life was a wreck from then on, even though he claimed to be a Christian and claimed to be the hippie preacher. I think um, the Jesus revolution has given us much of what we have today in the church, which is not positive, but very negative because of the antinomianism but he would often be involved in great sin, and I'm not going on all into the sin that he was in, and then the next day get up and preach to a large group of hippies. Now, there's a lot of things that you can say, and there's a lot of things you can do, but Jesus says in Matthew 7:23, then I will tell them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. If you practice lawlessness, if it's your lifestyle, and Jesus is very clear in that, then you're not a child of God. He will say, depart from me, I never knew you. I don't care what they say. If their life is different as far as not living for God, practicing lawlessness, then they're not a part of God's kingdom. They're not a born-again Christian. If a person's lifestyle is a lifestyle of sin, it's saying, I'm not a Christian. It's saying, I'm not in Christ. I'm not born again. I'm not a new creation. And I never cease to be surprised by the great blindness and ignorance of those who call themselves Christians that continue in sin. Continue living in this world and living for this world. Many who call themselves Christians who think that simply because they attend church occasionally, pray a prayer every now and then, drop a few dollars in the offering plate, they think they're a Christian. Such people are consumed with 
the things of this world and they desire and love the things of this world and they have no real desire to worship God or serve in God's kingdom. It's all about the fleshly pleasures. I can remember former pastor that I served with at the very beginning of my ministry and he said, my father would always complain at church about how long the sermon was. Professed to be a Christian. Always complained. And then finally God saved him, really saved him. He said he never complained again. Why? Because he had a different appetite. Before he didn't have any appetite for the sermon. He just wanted to hurry up and be over with. But then when God changed him, he had a completely different desire. He wanted, he, he couldn't, he Continue to preach, you know, couldn't get enough. So Jesus is teaching that in order to serve God rightly, you must cleave after Him with your affections, with your activities of obedience. He must be master. He must be Lord of your life. Again, think about Abraham. He lived in a pagan land. He lived with pagans, his, his ancestors, all of his family were pagans. And God called him out from among that and told him to leave his homeland. And we're told in Hebrews eleven eight, by faith Abraham obeyed. And when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going... Can you imagine that? I think it's hard for us to grasp being secure with your family, in your home, enjoying the things that they enjoy, and then all of a sudden God interrupts your life and says, get out. Leave your entire family behind. I'm going to take you a place. You don't know anything about the place, but I'm going to take you to a place which is going to be your inheritance. Now think about it, even though Abraham saw it. Abraham really never possessed the promised land here on earth. He possessed the promised land there in heaven. Why? Because he was obedient. His faith was even more obvious later. He had great faith in leaving his family, great uh, faith in going out. But his faith was even more obvious later when? When God came to him and said, Now take your only son. Remember how long he wanted a son? He was beyond the years of bearing a son in his 90s and now he finally has a son and God says, take that son and sacrifice him. Now wait a minute, God. <laughs> you have got to be joking. I waited all these years for a son and now you're telling me to sacrifice my son? Did Abraham argue with God? Not according to Scripture. He simply did what God commanded him, saying that God will provide the sacrifice. He was willing to bow to God's every command. See, when God is your Lord, when God is your master, you're under his control. You know that he does all things right. You're willing to submit to him no matter what the cost. And of course, that doesn't mean that we never disobey. Don't get that idea in your mind. When we do obey, disobey, then we need to repent. And it also means that we need to seek forgiveness when we disobey. But Jesus is very clear here. And in other places, that you are 
either against me or for me. Matthew 12, 30. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Luke 24, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sister, and yea, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Again, Jesus, you mean I must hate my father, mother, brother, sister, all of these? I must hate them? What's he saying there? In other words, the love for me compared to them must be like love and hate. In other words, I must be first. I must be the most loved. Nothing can come before me. Nothing is what Jesus is saying. In Revelations 3, 15 and 16, I know your works. They're neither hot nor cold. Would you... I would rather you be either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. See, those that try to straddle the fence have one foot in this world and one foot in heaven. They are lukewarm. Again, A.W. Pink says, Christendom is filled with atheists. He didn't say this world He said, Christendom is filled with atheists. For to hate and despise God is atheism. All who withdraw their heart from God and set themselves to seek things of this world to to the neglect of obedience to the divine commandments are here accounted by Christ as despisers and haters of God which is the very worst form of atheism. Let that sink into your mind. See, Christianity has fallen on hard times. The vast majority worship wealth, worship things. They're more eager and diligent in their desire after worldly gain than holiness, more eager in these things than conforming to the image of Christ. The spirit of covetousness abounds in the church today. Not simply in our society. So it's speaking to us. We see that greed is dominant today. I recently saw a report where $163 billion was misused during COVID. And what do I mean by that? Well, people saying, I need the money, and just outright lying. $160 billion, not the government's dollars, our dollars, that we send. And then the government turns around and disperses it because people are sinful. Idolatry reigns supreme in the hearts of men. It isn't only powerful, but it's very subtle in controlling men's lives. I mean, think about it. When the money was being sent out, our money is sent out by the government. Did you not have a tendency to say, boy, you know, I'd, I'd enjoy getting an extra check, a little bit more money. We were sent checks, but I'm talking about through deception filling out some forms to get the money. I mean, it's subtle. 
It's subtle in controlling men's lives. It will grip you. It will master your feelings. It masters your affections. It will cause you to lose all sensibility to have that which we should not have. And what's worse is professing Christians are infected by this same spirit. That's why we must put on the whole armor of God. It it constantly attacks us. Having no desire to deny self and to live in this world as pilgrims. In other words, we pretend that we only like them, that, that we really don't love those things. We, you know, we, we just like them. And we lie to ourselves. See, Christians often are guilty of wanting extravagant homes and extravagant furniture and filling, up, filling them up with the newest fashions. And, and we're never satisfied with what we have. Well, I've had that for 10 years. It's time to get something new. It doesn't matter what condition it's in. Now, I can understand if it, the springs are popping out of the couch, yeah. But I'm talking about a perfectly good piece of furniture. And, well, I think it's time to just get something new for the sake of newness. That's our mindset a lot of times, is it not? I mean, we're never satisfied. Instead of saying, now, how can I use that money for the kingdom of God, for God's glory? A.W. Pink says, Is there any wonder that the judgment of an angry God now falling so heavily upon us? Judgment begins first in the house of God. A grieved spirit withdrew. And his power and the unction are now noticeably absent from the preaching of the word. But instead of God's people humbling themselves beneath his almighty hand and repenting of and forsaking their sin, they have in large measure lived in pleasure on this earth and been wanting. Strong words by Pink. But I believe he's right. The one who has his eyes on both God and this world deceives his own soul and is in danger of loving both. It doesn't repent and confess to the Lord. For Jesus says you cannot, it's impossible to serve God and manna. Therefore, serve God. And in doing so, you are laying up treasures in heaven. Do you see that? Someone may be saying, well, how do I lay up treasures in heaven? I just told you. Serve God. Serve God and you lay up treasures in heaven. If you desire to be truly happy, it is found only there in serving God, living for Christ. Christ has appointed the means whereby you are able to lay up treasures where you're able to have happiness. You know, Jesus gives the parable there in Luke 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. There, beginning in verse 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fair, superfluous every day. But, There was a certain beggar named Lazarus who was full of sores who laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. 
So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in torment in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you is a great gulf, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, which also the rich man had. Let them hear him. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, in other words, if they do not listen to the word of God, Neither will they be persuaded if one rise from the dead. And one has risen from the dead. And they're still not persuaded. But notice, the rich man did not come to see the attachment of his heart and the false mindset that he had until when? Until he died. Until he died and he was in torment. His eyes were not opened until he was in torment in eternal hell. Then he realized the great fallacy of his life that he loved riches instead of God. Let us pray. Father, may we not be like the rich man to where we love the things of this world and one day find ourselves in an eternal hell. Open our eyes to see. Open our eyes and change our heart so that we might love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do not allow us to be deceived by the evil one. Do not allow us to continue to be in bondage to Satan in this world, to be enslaved to his desires. Set us free. Draw us to Thee. 
calls us to see the seriousness of this passage. That there is only two masters. And either we serve God or the God of this world. Wake us up. Do not allow us to be like Deimos, deserting you for the desires of this world. But give us victory over sin. Give us a desire to live for you, to serve you, to worship you, and to use the things that you bless us with for your kingdom work and to bring honor and glory to you in promoting the gospel. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Brother Thomas, we know that it's...